0: Hey, it's Jonathan. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that a pretty significant part of our community are what I call conscious entrepreneurs. And what I mean by that is it's folks who are founders, and that could be of a business and organization, foundation, private practice, anything like that that have three things in common one is that you serve a genuine need you really solve a problem and you deliver that and get paid for it and so solving a problem and generating real profit is important to you the second is that what you create actually serves as a true vehicle for the expression of your strengths your values and beliefs and your voice so it lets you step into your fullest potential And the third is that there's something bigger happening here. You're part of something bigger and you're serving some bigger need. And that's what I call a conscious business. And we've created all sorts of experiences, programs, courses over the years, designed to serve conscious business founders in a variety of ways. And amazing things have happened. We put pretty much everything on hiatus this year because we wanted to really deconstruct what we were doing and figure out how to bring more people together to serve them on a higher level. Because what we found is that not only do people need information and great advice and strategy and support, but there's a tremendous amount of isolation and loneliness for so many people who are in the business of founding conscious businesses, and we want to create a true community. So we've been at work at this for the better part of the year, and I'm really excited to share that we are now live with this really powerful new experience it's called the 108 and it is a conscious business collective. And if you want to know what that's all about, if you want to figure out whether it's in any way something that would be interesting for you, then you can either just click on the link in the show notes or just head on over to goodlifeproject.com/the108. That's T H E and then the number 108 check it out. See if it feels right to you. If it does, then awesome. And if not, then uh, thank you for listening. And I'm going to kick it over to uh, today's guest. Thanks so much.
1: It took me a while. I mean, it really took me a while to figure out how I wanted to be in the world and like what of my wants were responses to things that I'd experienced in childhood and what were actually the things that I wanted and like the kind of life that I wanted.
0: My guest this week is Emily McDowell. She's been on my radar for a number of years. About five years ago, if you'd asked Emily what she was up to, she would tell you that she was an executive creative director in the advertising world. Fast forward, she is now the head of Emily McDowell Studios. They have a line of cards, merchandise, all sorts of stuff. Really awesome, irreverent, funny, illustrated, blending all the things you wish you could say, but never could find a card to say it, and all the thoughts out on your mind for those weird, difficult scenarios and relationships. And they're putting it out into the world. And what she's created has absolutely taken off. Now available, and I think closing in on 2,000 retail locations. And she's at a a fascinating point of inflection. This has all happened literally in the last three to four years. She's gone from creating a single card that took the uh, online world by storm and has exploded into a really fast-growing company. And she's at a point where she's trying to figure out where to go next and what to do. We sit down and spend a whole bunch of time talking about her journey. Emily is also somebody who, at the age of 24, was diagnosed with cancer and made a very deliberate decision after going through treatment that she didn't want it to define herself. Yet much later, she's circled back and created an entire line of cards called her her Empathy Series. That does not define her brand, but brings her unique lens, her irreverent wit and sense of humor to helping people understand how to navigate the conversations around illness and just around scenarios that are really complex. Really excited to share Emily, her story and what she's building, and her amazing creative energy with you. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
0: So we're hanging out here today, and we were just both in Portland, Oregon together, hanging out at World Domination Summit. How would you like being on stage there?
1: I actually really liked it. I was really surprised. I have done a bunch of speaking, but that was the biggest audience that I would ever spoken to. And it was the biggest audience that I'd ever spoken to without notes or a podium to Uh, sort of clutch and hide behind, you know? And so I was nervous about it. Until I went on stage, and then I wasn't, and it was fine. And it, was, it just felt like me talking about my life, which I know. So I was like, I don't, you know, I don't really, I'm not like super worried about memorizing a
0: thing. I know. It's also that, I mean, that audience is such, it's almost like they just, they love you. They want you to to rise. It's it's such a warm. They were super
1: warm and amazing. And I felt like I could have just gotten up there and done like an interpretive dance for 40 minutes almost. (laughs) And they would have been like, awesome. Like, way to experiment, you know, which I'm glad that that didn't come to fruition because then there would be evidence on the internet. This is
0: true. And I and I've seen your famed uh, resume for dance uh, neuroses. Oh have
1: you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was cracking up reading that.
1: That because uh, I'm, like, I'm, I'm like checking that. off
0: the things where I'm like, that's me too, that's me too. <laughs>
1: well it came out of this thing that you know, my friend and I were talking about this and I was working on a guided journal project that ended up getting shelved and it might come back someday. But it was this thinking about the idea that as adults we ha- there are so many be- beliefs that we have about ourselves that started to be formed very early and that started to be formed in ways that, like, logically make no sense. Like, right. I have a – my stepson is 11, and he just finished uh, sixth grade – or he's, he's in – excuse me, he just finished fifth grade, and – Fifth grade for me was, like, my worst year. Like, I I actually really liked middle school. And fifth grade was, like, the year when everything kind of fell apart for me, like, socially Uh at school.
0: You front-loaded it.
1: I did. Uh I really did. I got it over early, so it was kind of in a good way. It was kind of good in some ways. But there was – I remember, like, the fifth-grade boys being, like, you know, you're just really weird insults. Like, your hands are really puffy. Like, like, just (laughs) these, like, things that make – and I think about – and those were all things that I like internalized about myself. And I'm like, Oh my puffy hands, you know? And like to this day, I'm like, Oh, I have to, I can't wear like this ring. Cause my hand is puffy. And it's like, well, I, I, you right, know, right. And I, cause I looked at Oliver and I'm like, Oliver doesn't even know what's coming out of his mouth. Like he's a total yeah. spaz. He just doesn't even like, you know, he's just right. whatever. That's how you're supposed to be. At that you're day. Just, exactly. <laughs> you're just like, you say nothing makes any sense. And so thinking about like, a belief about yourself as an adult person with agency that came from something that came out of the mouth of a kid who was 11 who has no memory of having said that and no idea that that could have a repercussion on someone like 30 years. Right. And it just lingers with you. It just lingers with you. And so the dance thing was, you know, started really early and like, and I started talking with my friend about um, how I'm, just a terrible dancer and I've had this like sort of dance phobia. And so I made this neurosis resume that basically traced it back to its genesis of like all of the times I felt inadequate in dance (laughs) and like put it together in sort of resume format to look at it. And it was really fun to write it. And it was also just a really interesting exercise to look at like how neuroses get formed Mm. and why, and kind of break down like the logical fallacy of it, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was funny because I was really, and, and for you guys have to go, I'll, I'll I'll make sure I drop a link into the uh, show notes, but it's really funny. It's like a resume, which just is like every moment where you had like an opportunity to dance, you know, like from <laughs> weddings to school dances and just how like, how the neuroses manifested in that moment. Um, and it was, but it, it, it's so interesting too, because how, I mean, so much stuff that happens to us or sort of like in that window of years between, I guess for you it started in fifth grade and sort of like middle school, high school. You can be like forties, fifties, and like it takes in the blink of an eye. Oh it all gosh, comes yeah. flying, and you're like, "Wait a minute! Haven't I grow- like at some point? Don't I get to just grow out of this right. and we on the high just like not believe right? This just anymore? be like, like, like whatever.
1: Be freed from the specter of like a something, something a ten year old said to me. Right? Once. And it's like, like
0: <laughs> it's insane how stuff can just snap you back there, yeah. like in so quickly. Yeah, we see. It's it's kind of funny too because we see it in a. Uh, It's sort of like a macrocosm level because we we do some large events too where people are living together. I mean, literally like, you know, in communal living for the bed part of four days. Mm -hmm. And that, it's an amazing, amazing experience. And at the same time, you know, for some people, it'll bring up stuff. <laughs> right. You know, just sort of being around. And so we have to create this expectation really fast that, you know, like, it, it's cool. You know, like, this is camp without all the adolescent angst because nobody cares anymore. Right. And people realize that within the first 24 hours. But until they do sometimes those first few hours, some people, you know, it's like you have to get used to that. that this it is going to be okay. triggers all your stuff for Yeah, sure, it's yeah. amazing yeah. how. So we see, it, it just stays with us. Yeah. And you're kind of like... How much therapy do we need to do? I know, just right? That, like, and I feel like go. I'm
1: like, I've had a lot of therapy. Like, I feel like I've talked about this a lot. Like, can the dance thing, like, go away? You know? And right. uh, and it's actually better than it used to be because I did do, like, kind of a bunch of work around it. And, like, even just breaking it down in the, like, logical into, like, doing the resume made me feel better about it. Like, right. it made me feel, like, just look at, like, what is this? Like, what is, the, none of this means anything, right. you know? Like, and who cares? But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, at a certain point, you're like, why am I paying someone to talk about this? <laughs>
0: like, can we just leave this right, behind? Right. It's like, well, we'll, we'll cut off the therapy. And now I'm just going to go challenge myself to dance publicly for like every week. Right. For, well, this was like the uh, the person who was speaking at uh, WDS, right? Um. Right. Michelle. Michelle, uh, I'm blanking, uh, Polar puller. Yeah. Uh, polar. Yeah. About how she challenged herself like every day for a hundred days to just do something that scared the crap out of her. Right. Um, and it's amazing what that like just doing it, like the exposure therapy does to you.
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> totally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. So you grew up in Western Mass. Yeah, I grew up just
1: outside of Boston.
0: So just outside of Boston. And um, what type of kid you were you?
1: What type of? Oh, I was a weird kid. <laughs> um, I was really, I was a really like precocious kid. And I also had like really low self esteem. So it was kind of a weird combination. You mm. know what I mean? Like I was kind of like like, I was just insecure about it about being a person in the world. And so I kind of needed to like prove to everyone how smart I was all the time, mm. uh, which is probably why everyone in fifth grade one day was like, we don't like you. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and I had to kind of learn that lesson. But I think that um, my parents were divorced and and my we lived with my mom and it was not a super easy childhood for many reasons. And so I was kind of always looking outside of home to get validation and find sort of adults to be close to. Mm. Um, I remember very distinctly the moment that I realized that I was funny and that I could be funny, and, like, that funny was a, a social currency. So like, I remember it super clearly. I was in, It was the very beginning of seventh grade, and it was Spanish class, and the teacher said something, and I, instead of, like, just responding in my head, like I always had before in terms of, like, making some smart-ass comment, I said it out loud, and the whole class was like, ah! And I was like, oh, my God, like have like (laughs) i can do this like i can be and because i never felt i never liked the way i looked like i never felt like i was like pretty i never felt like i you know like i was always insecure about like certain things and then i was like and then it it was like oh my god like this is i can be this like i can be i can say the things that i think in my head out loud and people will respond to them and like them Mm. and this is a way that i can be in the world
0: that, that Makes sense to me. So, did that open the floodgates? It
1: really did. Like, it really did. And then I, be, and then you know, I really, li- I ended up really liking middle school and high school. Like, I was really social and like had just kind of a nice life. And so it was, <laughs>
0: like, it's, it's m- which
1: is like the opposite of how like most people's experiences go, you right. know. But I had really, really close friends that I still have like to this day, and I'm 40, and I haven't lived in Massachusetts for since I was 18. And all of them went to college in New England and like grew up and married each other. You know, and like I left when I was eighteen and went to Minnesota for school. Yeah, and uh haven't lived there since.
0: But I still have friends from from high school. Were any of the friends that you're still friends with in that classroom with you in seventh grade? Um, yeah, actually. Did like do you, do any of them remember that moment? As no, something where, and you know like, what? That's oh, wow, so like... funny
1: because I just realized last year that this. W- I, like, I just put it together last year that there was a moment of genesis huh. for this. Like, I'd always sort of you know, thought about, oh yeah, like seventh grade was when I started to like be just more outgoing with, with other kids and yeah. just be more, you know, be more of who I was instead of kind of being nervous all the time about pleasing everybody and trying to, you know, like just yeah. being more uh, just out, out there.
0: It's amazing, right? Because they're, they're probably, probably everybody has like those few moments in their lives where something changed and yeah. they, and maybe they didn't know it'd be at some point they reflect about and like, oh, that was the moment but it was very likely this innocuous thing where it wasn't a big thing. It was just something internally shifted and where you, that becomes a really pivotal moment for you. But, but I'm always curious whether other people around, right, are aware. Probably of not the importance of that moment, you
1: know. I mean, probably not. Yeah, because it was just it wasn't like I stood up and did some big Jerry Maguire right. thing or anything. It was just like, <laughs>
0: yeah, it's just been, I just
1: made some dumb joke, you right. know. But then in my head, it was it turned into this whole like, oh wait, this is a, and and but everyone, of course, especially at that age, is just thinking about themselves. It's like you know, dance like no one is watching because no one is watching because everyone's worried about themselves, right. you know. And <laughs> that's so it's like I don't think anyone's thinking about like. What's that? Ki- what's going on in the in the psyche of that kid over no, there? No, you're too freaked to out about yourself. Yeah, like <laughs> you're like oh you my know, god. Like, no, you're just <laughs> like are, are, are my shoes weird? Area. You know, like I don't know. But yeah, it is it is so interesting to think about that stuff. I think.
0: Yeah, it's pretty amazing that you kept those that type group of friends for so long. Also,
1: yeah, I was in a youth group actually in in um, high school that was that started a church like Unitarian church, so it wasn't religiously based. No. That I really credit that for. I guess. I feel like I had deeper friendships in high school than a lot of people that I know hmm. did who came from different places. And it was – I feel, I really credit the people who – the leaders of this youth group who I'm still in touch with and who are now, like, 80. That's um, for creating an environment where they sort of supported us in talking about really important things like trust and hmm. different – elements of friendship and how to like how to show up for other people and how to be a friend and how to um and how to engage with other people in a in a deeper way than just like some typical high school stuff and we did retreats like three times a year that were just kind of a weekend things and and it was like once a week and every week had like a different theme where we all like talked about stuff and it was Mm. it was really cool because it really It it, by by like my senior year in high school. It was really popular. There were like fifty kids going to it, and my town. I had two hundred in my graduating class, so it was like
0: quarter graduating class, right?
1: And you know, and it was all high school. It was all grades. It was nine through twelve. So it was like you know, but it was probably more juniors and seniors than younger kids. But it wasn't clicky. Like it was so interesting, Mm. and that you could go to this, and you could have like a kid who was a a jock kid and a kid who was like a nerdy kid or whatever. And they would end up becoming friends and all of the sort of high school, like bullshit just kind of didn't apply. And even then we knew that that was rare. Like even then we Mm. knew that that was like weird and kind of special, Yeah. but I really, and then I went to college and realized like, Oh, most people didn't have an experience like this. And I really credit that with like sort of teaching me how to be a a person.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. I think uh, I often wonder why, there isn't a part of curriculum, which is sort of life skills. I wonder that all the time. Like the big questions, like the fundamental life skills, sort of like, how do you interact with people? What really matters? You know, how do you define success in a way that actually resonates with you? All these different. And I think a lot of it traditionally, you know, it was, you know, society's definition, this is what's appropriate, just accept it. And then outside of that, the conversation always happened around some sort of like faith-based organization. Right. But- now, you know, like so many people are peeling away from, I mean, like the fastest growing group of people in the country now are what they call the nuns because they're like non-affiliated. Yeah. So you wonder, it's such an important set of conversations and it skills is. that's kind of vanishing. Yeah. And I wonder what the sort of like the long-term pain around that's going to be.
1: I agree. I read, you know, and I've never been religious in terms of organized religion person. And I grew up in a super liberal household in the Northeast. And so- faith, like organized faith, has never been a big part of my life. And I read an article recently that was about that, that, was, that really sort of changed the way that I thought about religion, mm. saying that religion served as a framework for basically teaching us how t- – teaching us like ethics and teaching yeah. us how to figure out who we were and asking ourselves and each other those questions and kind of going deeper and it sort of forced everyone to do that and it, be, and it also created community – and whether or not you believe in the thing that brought everyone together in that community or not, that wasn't even, that wasn't really the, the point of it. I mean, the point of it was to just be in a, be in community yeah. and that vanishing is really scary, you I, know? So, um, right.
0: yeah, I mean, it created a sense of like, like you said, an ethos and also a sense of belonging Yeah, that is we have to have. I mean, we can't flourish um, without that. And it's really, it's va- all all the main sources that are provided over generations are are either not providing anymore or people are running from it. And, yeah. I, and I wonder, like, we have to have that need filled. Like, where are we going to find it? Because we're not going to find it on the same level online that we can find it by just being like face-to-face with yeah. a small local community of people. Yeah, I um, agree. Yeah. So it's a really, I'm I'm fascinated by that phenomenon and how we're going to solve for that need these yeah. days. yeah. So at some point when did your interest in sort of expression art start to Oh emerge?
1: really really young. My yeah. mom's an artist and so we were very like <laughs> like there were a lot of things that we were not allowed to have as kids because they like weren't creative. Like we couldn't huh. have coloring books like things that other kids had like you know any kind of a kit like anything that anything that like sort of solved any kind of creative problem for yeah. you, like even partially, my mom right. was like, "No, like <laughs> you get a lump of clay, you Total know, like purist. you get a, yeah. <laughs> like we have a kiln. Here's a lump of clay. Like we'll, right. you know, and so I started art. I mean, I I've always loved making art, but the funny thing was that I never thought that I would be an artist because my mom was an artist and she really struggled. Like she really, my parents split up when I was uh, six and my younger sister was four and my mom had stayed home for a while, like took, started staying home before I was born. And she actually went to MIT when there were very few women at MIT, like six, you know, like it was very new and worked at an architecture firm, but didn't work there very long. Like didn't, wasn't senior in her career and then left and, and to have kids. And then, so looking back, trying to go back into the workforce. She was like, what can I do? Like, I can't pay anything that's even going to cover the cost of my childcare that, that, and so I need to find something to do to work from home. Um, and so she decided that she was going to make art quilts. My mom's a quilt maker Mm. and is now like sort of one of the best known quilt makers in the world and has stuff in major museums and is very like sort of credited as the leader of the sort of art, one of the leaders of this art quilt movement from the eighties and like, is uh, you know became very well known in that world but when she started she was like i'm just gonna do this and it wasn't a thing like it wasn't like "Oh, i'm gonna go join this movement that's happening it was like i'm gonna start making quilts and people would be like quilts for your bed and she'd be like no quilts for the wall and that was like what and she also mm. didn't really know how to make a quilt like she wasn't like, <laughs> like she wasn't
0: <laughs> she was like, so it was kind
1: of like she was like yeah I'm, I'm, and she taught herself how to do it and then she ended up teaching herself, like pioneering all that. She wrote up, um, she's written 10 books about pioneering piecing methods and all kinds of stuff because she used math from her MIT background to be able to figure out like how to do some really complicated things. But as a kid, I was like, what, can you just get a job? Like, can you just, you know, like this is, I don't, this is really, and we grew up in this really wealthy town. So it was, it was very, we had no money. I mean, we lived on basically the child support that my dad was giving us you know, and while she was establishing herself as an artist. And as an adult now, it all makes sense to me. Like, I get why she did it. I get why she felt cornered into, you know, feeling like she couldn't go back to work, having to work for herself, feeling that like she couldn't work for someone else. Like all these things I understand now. But as a kid, it was like, this is hard, you know?
0: You're just looking for security. Yeah. Just
1: want, like, and she was unhappy and yeah. we were really broke. And so in my head, I sort of was like, well, I don't want to be an artist because that is, that represents like struggle. Mm. Like that represents a life that I don't want to have a kind of life. And she ended up ultimately being successful. Like, but it took 10 years. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know? And plus my sister, what my sister is a super talented artist. She was, she's an illustrator or she's not anymore. Now she uh, is a jewelry buyer, but she went to art school and like, she did that whole, like, I'm going to go to art school and do that path. And so, and I was always really academic. So I was like, I'm going to go do something else. And, I, in fact, when I was a kid was very much like, I'm going to be a lawyer or something like Hmm. I wanted to like climb a career ladder and I wanted something that represented like security and like professionalism to me, you Mm. know, like I wanted like this idea of like going to work in a suit. I was like very attracted to that because it felt like validation or like real or like secure or something, you know? And so the thought of being an artist, it wasn't interesting to me. And I majored in English with a focus in creative writing in college and minored in art without even really intending to. I just liked huh. taking art classes and so I did and then it just sort of became my minor. But it was pre computers. So it was like fiber arts. You know, it was and like, yeah. you know, printmaking and stuff. Like it wasn't like learning skills that would translate into going and getting a design job or anything
0: like so that. So even then in the back of your mind, this was just something that you were enjoying. It, was, it wasn't like, okay, no, I'm was, setting up my future. Absolutely yeah. not.
1: There was zero and I feel like my undergrad I mean, I loved where I went to school. I went to a, a school called McAllister in Minnesota, uh, in Saint Paul, and I loved where I went to school. And they have a really well-known like international studies program and an economics program. And, and there were a lot of people there setting up their future. And I was really like, "I'm making an action movie with my friend," you know. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was like, "I'm going to pay for this until I'm 40," which I did. I just paid my final student loans for undergrad. But I really got out of college and was like, "What did I just do? Like, who? What do I? Wh- what?" what is a job, you know? Right. <laughs> like, so, uh, so yeah, it took me a while. I mean, it really took me a while to figure out how I wanted to be in the world and, like, what of my wants were responses to things that I'd experienced in childhood and what were actually the things that I wanted and, like, the kind of life that I wanted, Yeah, you know?
0: Most people never even look at that until you know, like much later in life, (laughs) if ever. I mean, I think so many people actually never even explore that. Right? You know, they're kind of like, uh, well, that's not what it's supposed to be about, um, which is so sad.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the
0: price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Did you go into advertising right out, out no, of college? What, what I, was your next move?
1: So I graduated from college, and it was the dot-com boom. It was the ah, late 90s, and so I moved to San Francisco with my boyfriend who has been my sort of on and off again college boyfriend and i got a job and that was like when you could go to san francisco and literally like you could walk down the street and people would be like do you want a job like do you <laughs> right. want a job can you please come work at my company we can't find like and but you would be looking for a place to live like it was the it was um on craigslist there would be apartmentless apartments and you would go and there would be like an open house where the all of the 40 people that wanted to live there would meet the person who was like the master tenant. And then they would like interview everybody and like decide who they wanted. And it was like, it was, it was like a 3% vacancy rate. It was crazy. It's kind of like it is now, except it was,
0: you know, a lot less expensive.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So we moved there and I'd never been to California before. And I went there, walked out onto the street in San Francisco. And I was like, this is where I'm supposed to live. Like, Mm. it felt like my body was like, Oh, like, all the things that didn't make sense, like that, have always felt uncomfortable to you about where you've lived before. Like all yeah. of those things, it was it was so weird, that I'd never had that um, kind of relationship with a place before. And yeah, so I did. We did the dot com thing, and I got a job that was to this day like the best job I've ever had. I worked at a magazine called The Industry Standard, um, which was a weekly I publication. Yeah, it was like an internet. It was like one right. of the first. It started. Like it started, the it started at the read, same time yeah. as Fast Company. Right, and it didn't survive, and Fast Company did. And it didn't survive because they didn't have a viable business model. Like they gave away their magazine for free with the intention that like eventually they would get people to subscribe to it. And they just had so much VC money that it didn't matter. And they had four different buildings in downtown San Francisco. (laughs) And it was like 500 people worked there. And I worked in their conference. They threw these executive conferences that were like For, you know, uh, this one is for CMOs and this one is for CEOs and this one. And they're always at a Ritz Carlton and they were like all over the world. Mm -hmm. and I became the person who was in charge of the look and feel of, like, each conference and the materials. And so it would be like, well, this one's an Aspen, so I'm thinking, like, wood and leather. And there was, like, no budget for anything. And so I would be like, I'd like to make the the conference binder that everyone gets out of, like, hammered metal, you know? And they'd be (laughs) like, okay. Like, it was ridiculous. And then I got to go to each of these conferences and stay at the Ritz. And, you know, when I was like 23 and I was like, working is awesome. Like, this is so awesome. Right. And then I got cancer. Um, and I got uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma and I was diagnosed and we c- I couldn't afford to stay in San Francisco like without a job. And I couldn't, it was not the kind of treatment that they were like, yeah, you can work through this. Like, it was kind of like, no, you kind of have to just do this for like eight months. Like, you, you probably won't be able to like go to work every day. So I had amazing health insurance. That's one thing that I'm so grateful for. I had just like the absolute best Cadillac health insurance plan. I mean, because I was in the hospital for about three and a half weeks before I was diagnosed because it was really sort of complicated how it all came about. And by the time it was over, my medical bills had been like a million dollars. And I paid like $4,000. I mean, it was like, it it was amazing. And I ended up getting... So I ended up going back to Boston actually for that year to get treatment at the Dana Farber because it was the best Hodgkin's hospital and it was in network for me. And so my company, the Industry Standard, like to their credit, they were amazing. They moved my boyfriend and he worked there too, and they moved us. They gave me a a credit card, like an unlimited credit card for like the last month that I was in San Francisco and was like just every meal, like whatever, like just just here. Like stuff that's unheard of and you wouldn't even no one would do it now, you know? And I think it was companies that like learned their, le- everybody kind of learned their lesson from this late nineties boom and bust. Right. But it was like, here, we'll just fund whatever you need. Like they moved us back. They shipped our cars back. They bought us like first class tickets to go back to Boston. Like they were just incredibly good to me. And, um, and then they went under like six months <laughs> mm. later, um, probably because they were making like those kinds of financial decisions. But um, it didn't affect my insurance. And, you know, and so we just did this eight months in Boston, and then, as soon as that was over, we were like, "I gotta get out of here. like can't live here." And um there were no jobs to go back to in San Francisco. So we ended up going to Minnesota, which is where we'd both gone to college because it was like, well, it's it's super cheap there, right, you know it. we have a lot of friends there. like we know it you know, we feel like there's a community there for us and we can just go back and it'd right. be
0: easy to live there. What was, before you made that move, af- after the eight months of treatment, mm-hmm. what was what was the prognosis at that time? I mean, how it? Looked. The
1: prognosis was good. I mean, okay. ho- you know, Hodgkin's is one of the, if you're going to get cancer, it's one of the better cancers to get, you know, um, which is like, you kind of hate hearing that when you have it, because you're like, yeah, but still like, yeah. this sucks and I might die. But it really is like, you know, as on the cancer spectrum, like fairly treatable, and so my body responded really well to the chemo too and radiation. And so the prognosis was good, you know, and it was just like, okay, well, you know, here's the protocol is you go get a CAT scan every three months for five years. And then they turn into six months. And then after 10 years, you don't get them and you just do this other thing. And, yeah. and so that was kind of, they sort of sent me on my way after that, which is odd, you know, to yeah. go from going to a place every day to have them be like, okay, like, see ya, like, you know, good luck.
0: How did you make this sort of emotional, mental, psychological adjustment from uh, that to just, okay?
1: That's a really, uh, I basically just was like, I'm going to pretend this didn't happen. Huh. I mean, there were so many lessons that I didn't want, that I felt at the time that I I, I I felt like I would be better off if I'd never learned that. Like, I remember feeling very clearly about, like, you know, I feel like I'd be better off if I had never learned some of these things that I learned while I was sick about, like, the nature of how a lot of humans respond to something scary and how just, there were just certain things that I was like, I just really wish I hadn't had that experience. And so.
0: Are you comfortable sharing like one and what one.
1: Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the, the, honestly, the biggest one, the biggest one was that I had, I had put so much stock in my friendships. I mean, my friendships were like really everything to me because they sort of replaced family in certain ways. And, and I felt like they, I had really deep friendships. And when I got sick, a lot of my friends just bailed. Um, because they were so scared and didn 't know what to do and had no idea how to like be with me as a sick person, and had never been through anything like that before with a with a peer at all, and so just had no idea like how to even be and it wasn 't everyone, but it was like a, a couple of like very close people to me, like mm. someone who had been like my closest friend since like the end of elementary school, and I had like lived with his family for certain periods in high school and it was just, he just couldn't do it. And at the time I interpreted all of that as me just not being lovable enough or me not something about me just like not being good enough that I'd been, if I'd been better in some way that people wouldn't have done it and it done that. And then of course realizing later, like, no, that's it has nothing to do with you. It, it's it's just this is how people respond to trauma sometimes, and when they don't have the tools to respond in a different way.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially because this was you're in your early twenties. Yeah, I I just turned so, twenty-four,
1: so it was like right. so no most one people has that. at that point
0: in their life. No, are no one has equipped. any yeah. like
1: coping skills. Like nobody, you know, right. and people don't even know how to be adults, you know, yet at that point in their life, you're just trying to figure out like how do I feed myself. Mm. It's just really tough. And that was just, that was the hardest part. And it was really interesting because those, and I felt like no one talks about this. Like I felt like, you know, you read sort of cancer books and there wasn't like, there wasn't, the other thing was that there was, now there are all kinds of really great organizations like Stupid Cancer, which I do a lot of work with, is an an organization that is for people under 40 with cancer and cancer survivors. And they do conferences and like, they have this great community. And the only thing this was just, it just was 2000. And so there was like some like message boards and like listservs and stuff for people, but there wasn't like, there weren't like young people communities Mm -hmm. or there was really no one that I could talk to about this stuff and be like, is this happening to you too? You know, there was just kind of like nothing. And so all the things that you read about, like, you know, losing your hair and people and like women being like, Oh, I feel so unattractive or like, I, you know, like my identity is gone. Like I, all this stuff. Like, yeah, those things were true, but they, but I felt like, well, my hair will grow back. And in a way it felt almost like a get out of jail free card. Like I didn't have to be concerned about how I looked cause I kind of knew that I looked like shit and I was like, mm-hmm. I have cancer. Like I'm not, I don't care about how I look. Like I don't really, you know, like I, I can kind of not wear makeup and like not cause I just feel like. This is not a time, like I don't have, like whatever I do, I'm going to still kind of look like shit. So I, yeah. I can just not think about that right now. And so it actually was kind of freeing in that way. Like, meh, like I just, I'm just going to put that aside. But the, the relationship stuff was so hard and I felt like no one talks about this or I had never heard about it as being like a huge component of what happens when you get sick or, you know, somebody, you lose a spouse or some, and, and go through some kind of loss or trauma that other people find scary. And so coming out of that, I just felt like I just want to, like, put this behind me. Like, I want mm. this to – I don't want this to, like, color the rest of my relationship. I don't want this to make – to to um, inform negatively my relationships going forward. Like, I don't want to be afraid to trust people. I don't want to be afraid to, you know, be my whole self with people. And so, like, I'm going to just, like, put this away kind of in a box. And I was also super paranoid about – I didn't ever want to sort of identify as like a cancer survivor publicly because I felt like I was really paranoid about that becoming my identity. Like, Mm. and and I just really was like, no, I just don't, I just feel like this is a thing that happened and I don't want to, and I'll talk about it if people want to talk about it. Like I don't want to, I'm not going to like ever pretend it didn't happen, but I also don't want to lead with it ever. And for whatever reason, I was just really paranoid about that. And so the irony was like, you know, then, However many years later, 15 years later, when I when the Empathy Cards thing came out, it was 300 major news organizations all over the world being like, cancer survivor, hmm. Emily McDowell. And I was just like, oh, God, like it was really. Right, it's the uh, very
0: thing that. Yeah, you know, like, it was so, so interesting. Yeah. And I was just like,
1: oh, OK, like, I guess here it is. You know, like, I guess I guess we're doing this now but then it was fine. I mean, then it was like, yeah. it felt fine. But right, you had yeah.
0: a lot of time to process at that yeah. point. And actually, I'll, I want to come back to that, but let's sort of like fill in the rest of the story before we get there. So from there, then you, you know quote, turn the page and say, okay, let mm-hmm. me just lean into something new.
1: Lean into something new. And so I went to Minnesota, did various things for a couple years. In fact, started, <laughs> this is like a story that not a lot of people know. I um, really had no idea what I wanted to do. And I, my sister had just graduated from college and I went to, to Baltimore and we went to a bead store. Uh, anyway, the upshot being that I made a necklace out of beads at this bead store with my sister. And back in Minnesota, I'm wearing the necklace and I'm shopping for a wedding gift at a store. And the woman who works there says, hey, I love your necklace. Where'd you get it? And I said, oh, thank you. I made it. And she said, are you a jewelry designer? And I said, yes. And I was unemployed. Like I was temping at my old school, like calling... An alumni right, and asking right. for money. And so she was like, well, you know, we have five stores and I bet our buyer would really like to take a look at your stuff. It looks like it would really fit in our store. So here's the buyer's card. If you, you know, whatever, want to get in touch with her, like here's her information. Mm-hmm. So I was like, hmm, like, you know, making this necklace was really fun and pretty <sighs> easy. And I bet I could make like a ton of necklaces. Like I can totally do this. And there was no Etsy. This was, this was like pre any of that stuff. Yeah, And so I, I went to the I went to a bead store in Minneapolis and I just bought a bunch of stuff and I made a bunch of stuff and I called the buyer and I made an appointment and I was going to try to like bluff my way through it like I was like all right I am going to like just per- just study up on like all of this terminology and learn how much to mark everything up and all that stuff. So I like went and did a whole bunch of research and yeah. was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to just like pretend that this is what I do. And so I went in there and that plan fell apart in like 10 minutes because <laughs> she started asking me questions that I like, didn't even know what the question was like, let alone the answer, yeah. you know? And so I sort of came clean and was like, ah, I've actually never done this before, but you know, I made all this stuff and they were so kind and they were like, we don't care. Like your stuff is awesome and we want to sell it in here. Right. So we don't really care if you've ever done it before. So I then started selling jewelry in these five stores, and then they introduced me to one of their sales reps. And so, I then I had a, a rep in that little area, just in the Upper Midwest. And so, the first year that I was doing jewelry, I started just doing that full time, and I made like forty thousand dollars. And I was like, oh my gosh, like all I do is sit on the couch and watch HBO in my underwear and like bead things, right? And you making know? legit money. And I'm making <laughs> like money, and, and right, because I was like twenty five, and I was right. like forty thousand dollars in Minnesota I was like, oh, yeah. you know, this is. But it started to get bigger. Like I, it started to, the demand started to eclipse what I could just do. And so I was like just sitting and beating and beating and beating all the time. And so I knew nothing about business and I was like, like, I guess what I need to do is start like hiring people or like outsourcing this or like Mm. figuring out how to do this. And that all, that whole thing sounded so daunting and so scary that I was just like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know but I just know that this isn't challenging my brain enough to like, I'm kind of bored. Like I'm, you know, like I'm just making, I'm just doing a repetitive task all day. This isn't quite what I want to do. And I looked into, so to to be in advertising, you need to go to portfolio school. Like you can't just get a job as a junior at an ad agency with a degree. You have to like go to a special school and like get a, what a portfolio together and then, and then submit it to an agency. And it's super competitive to get your first job. And I'd actually looked into that school because there were a couple in Minnesota, but it was like 30 grand for two years. And I was like, I don't, you know, I'm not going to take on any more debt. And then one of the big schools in Minnesota did a scholarship contest and it was not a normal thing for them. They just did it like this one year. And it was like you, the winner gets a, a full ride. And it was an assignment. If you wanted to be a writer, the assignment was to write a radio spot which is super hard. It's the hardest thing. Writing radio is really hard. And if you wanted to be an art director, the assignment was make some marker comps of print ads for Minnesota winter tourism. And I was like, that sounds easy. Like that sounds way easier. Cause I was like, I don't know whether to be an art director or writer. Cause I'd sort of had both in my background and Mm -hmm. I liked both. And I was like, I'm going to be an art director cause that assignment is way easier. And I feel like I would do way better at that. And so I'd said, and I remember saying to my boyfriend, like, well, if I, Get this money, which is a super long shot. I'm going to go to ad school and go into advertising. If I do not get it, I'm going to figure out how to build this, set, turn this into a company. Hmm. And I never thought that I would get the money, and then I did. And so you had to make a choice. I had to make a choice, <laughs> and yeah. I was like, "All right, like I guess this is what I'm supposed to be doing, you know." And and I get to go to the school for free, and I get this opportunity, so I'm going to do this. And so I. Finished in a year and a half because I was a little bit older. I was like 26 at the time, and most of the other people were coming straight out of undergrad. Right. So I'd had a little more experience with computer programs and stuff at that point. Did,
0: when you made the decision, because mm-hmm. at the time you're making like decent money doing jewelry. Yeah. Did, was there a moment where you hesitated to shut that down?
1: Not really. The big difference between then and then starting a company that I started in my 30s was... I didn't trust my own judgment then. Mm. And I didn't trust that I knew what I was doing, and I didn't trust that, like, there were just... It was too scary. At the time, I was too young. I knew too little about business, and I still was clinging to that sort of vestiges. Like, advertising felt really attractive to me because it was like, here's a ladder you can climb. Like, here, this is, like, right. a track for a career that someone else designed that is, like, a predestined thing. Yeah, it's
0: like the whole thing from your childhood. The whole thing it's from like, my childhood. Okay, like, this is, is, like, is, so, security.
1: Yeah, and I felt, yeah. like... This jewelry thing is cool, but I didn't feel secure. Yeah. I didn't, you know, and I and I could get much better health insurance if I was working in a company, which was another sort of factor for me. And right. so I was like, it was kind of a no brainer. Like I got the money and I was like, all right, like peace out jewelry, like that was cool, but this is gonna be like my real career. Like I'm gonna mm-hmm. start this adult job now. And so when I was twenty seven, I started my first I got my first agency job and, and I went and that took me back to San Francisco. That was how I ended up getting back to San Francisco, was getting recruited and hired by an
0: a, um, agency there. Yeah. So you, and that was an art direction. hmm And you ended up staying there for, for close to a decade, right?
1: Uh, in, the, in the industry, yeah. And then I moved to LA in 2006, and I've been in LA since. Right. And so I worked at various agencies in Los Angeles. But yeah, I, I was about four years in and really feeling like I really wish that I'd been a writer. Mm. <laughs> like, that was but you can either be one you or the imagine other. Thinking that
0: radio spot, yeah, art exactly director, like that. Just, right. And it was
1: literally yeah. that was what that was what made that call for me. Right. Like it was yeah. this one thing that ended up setting a whole career in motion. And so you usually don't get to switch. And I had a very cool boss who I was working on ESPN at the time, which was almost all like low budget comedy TV. So for an art director, there's not that much to do mm. if you don't write also. And so I was writing sort of as many scripts as my copywriter partner, like he and I were writing them all together. And it was clear that I was like, just really enjoying writing and like, good at it. And my boss said to me, you know, we need another writer in the department. And we were thinking about hiring one. But I wanted to ask you first if you'd rather switch, and then we'll hire an art director instead to fill your old job. And so I ended up doing that. And then ended up being a writer for the rest of the time and sort of coming up to creative director through being a writer. I liked that so much better. It was just so much less tedious. Like a lot of art, a lot of being an art director and advertising is working with a comp for 12 hours to make it like exactly right. And it was a lot of like banner ads at the time because it was like Mm -hmm. early, you know, 2005, like make this banner into like 12 steps so that a client understands that a guy walks across the screen and then like puts a thing down. And it was just, it felt, it was a lot of like late nights for like, not a lot of return, you know, mm. like it was just a lot of sort of tedium and writing felt better to me and yeah. easier and like more time efficient, you know?
0: Right. So by the time you work your way up doing that, like what were you, what did you spend most of your days doing?
1: Coming up with ideas for campaigns and working, you know, everything from writing TV to doing 360, which interactive is what they call it. I'm trying to think of like a, be- like a better term for it now because it's like I've been out of the industry for so yeah. long But <laughs> It now, I think, is just ads. Like, everything is just, like, uh, an app can be an ad. Some kind of online game interactive thing can be an ad. And that stuff was, like, just kind of, like, it was a thing. But agencies still had, like, an interactive department versus a traditional department. Yeah. And now they don't anymore. Like, now it's all integrated and it's all, like, 360 and just an ad is an ad. And you get very few assignments, I think, now that are, like, write a TV spot. Because usually they start with... The idea and then develop the media from there. Right. And the old model was to buy the media first and then be like, have right. an idea then that fits it. with this media. Yeah. And I think that they're doing it differently now. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So, what's going on with you personally in your mind as you're like building this career in advertising in your life?
1: I was really not happy and trying very hard to convince myself that I was liking it and that I was happy because I worked so much. And it's not like this everywhere, but I had sort of a series of jobs where it was, you know, working Christmas and working Easter and canceling vacations and and not having weekends and all of the stuff, like putting in, I was putting in so much and I was really giving it kind of everything I had and really trying very, very, very hard. And I wasn't bad at it. Like I was fine at it, but I was never like superstar material in that career, But I was good enough at it that I kept getting promotions, Mm. you know, but it always felt like a huge struggle. Like, it always felt very hard. And I kept thinking, like, I don't want this giant element of my life to just feel like a struggle all the time. Like, I feel like there's a way to have a career that doesn't feel like this. And I feel like there has to be, you know. Mm. But... I had no idea what that was or what that would look like. And I had put so much time in that it was really hard to look at it and be like, maybe this isn't the career for me Mm. because I also like when you get to a certain point point, you're making money and you're like, well, what am I going to do? Like now I'm in my thirties and I don't want to start at the bottom again in another industry. I don't even know what that industry would be. This is what I know how to do. And what's been so interesting to me after having left, been out of the business now for like four years is that, I had no idea that the knowledge that I had from being in that business was not knowledge that everyone had because I was surrounded, we all were surrounded, I, everyone who knew the same things we right. did. And so I didn't really understand how valuable that knowledge would be translated into another industry. Mm. And the way that I understand marketing and branding and how to build a brand and how to think about how people think and all, all of these strategy and all these things that I learned working in that industry I came out of it and it was a while before I was like oh everyone in advertising had those things so it didn't feel special but actually this knowledge is super valuable and and it and it super translates outside of this industry and I think you know there are a lot of people in that industry that are not happy. There are, there are people who are, and I think it's the kind of thing where you either have to like love, love, love it, mm. and if you love, love, love it, it's like the perfect job for you, like it's just amazing, and you have like just an amazing time. But if you don't love it that much because it takes so much out of you, it's really hard to do it, yeah, and a lot of people I know got to a point in their careers where they felt like, oh, I wish I could leave, but I don't know what else I could do. The only thing I'm qualified for is this, yeah. And it's, like, not even being able to see, like, actually, you have so much knowledge that translates
3: Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of Hyaluronic Acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman founded women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's OSEA dot code SUMMER. So
0: what was the moment for you where things flipped and you were like, huh?
3: It was starting to
1: do cards. And realizing that the place that I came from, which was, I was very, I got really used to thinking about solving problems. And like, you know, because a successful ad convinces you that the product that you're buying will solve your problems, because that's what drives all of our little human minds all the time is like getting our problem solved. And if you have a product that actually solves a problem, it's way easier to sell it than if you have to make up a problem and then convince people yeah. they have it and then and, and sell it back in. And so I started to think about that and, and just having that awareness, like having that kind of awareness and looking at an industry like greeting cards that had been the same for so many years and that there ended up being a lot of opportunity to sort of shake things up and disrupt it and, and do something different. But it was all based in like psychological awareness of how people think and like what people respond to, and I certainly would not have had that if I didn't have so many years of training, working in advertising, and thinking about that. And so it was like, oh, I can actually apply this to create something that solves a problem instead of an ad that solves a problem.
0: So you start to create cards. When when you create like that first one in your mind, is this a test? So is this like a test on a potential path that takes yes. you out of what you're doing? Okay, so it was very deliberate from the beginning. It
1: was deliberate from the yeah. beginning. I, um, and I was freelancing still when I I'd quit my job, feeling like I really don't want to go back to a full-time job. I really want to use this to transition out. I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to freelance for a while and see if I can figure it out and you know, not work all the time for the first time in however many years and just see if I can give myself some space to like, right. figure it out. And so that's what I was doing. You know, I had this Etsy shop that I started just kind of to mess around and sell prints of my illustrations that people had started to ask for.
0: So you're still doing art in the background during all like you're creating your own stuff.
1: I didn't have time to do it when I was right. working in advertising, and it wasn't until I started freelancing that I started right.
0: Going drawing back
1: again. It, and yeah. it was like, and it was in a, in an effort to decide and figure out what I actually wanted, huh. and it, and because I read some article somewhere about like if you have no idea what you want to do with your life, like try going back to what you liked to do as a kid. And so I started to think about like, well, what did I do when I was by myself? Like what, what did I enjoy doing? And the answers were writing stories and drawing and being creative. Mm. And we always had art supplies in the house and we always had, you know, that environment where it was creativity was super encouraged. And so I started drawing, like I started drawing little comics, and I started doing hand lettering, which wasn't really a thing yet. There were some people, Mary Kate McDevitt, and like there were some right. people who were doing it, but it wasn't like friend like yeah. and not like now. And I'd always loved to do that, like that was what I did in meetings when I was bored, and what I did in school when I was bored in the margins. Mm-hmm. And so I was started to really do those things, and then Pinterest, I was, I was sort of another test where Pinterest then was introduced, like Pinterest started. And in the very beginning, when there weren't a lot of people on Pinterest, you could pin something and then that thing would be up on the homepage long enough for people to like repin it and repin it. And so Pinterest was just getting started right around the time that I started doing these illustrations. And so I started posting them on Pinterest to see what would happen. Mm. And people started repinning them like all over the place. And it ended up like Tyra Banks like tweeted a picture of one of them that she Mm. found on Pinterest and, you know, and it was like, oh, like... Of course, and I didn't sign anything. I, like, didn't know. You know, I was just <laughs> right. so dumb. So there's, like, all this work floating around out there Right, so now.
0: nobody knows it's you. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah and, right, right. so, so because I wasn't even thinking about it that way. Right. I was just thinking, like, I'm doing a, th- I'm doing a test, kind of, like, yeah. and it was like, oh, my God, people really like this. And this was really fun for me to make. And, okay, so this is cool. So let me, I'm just going to open a little Etsy store, and I'm going to go buy, like, a $500 printer and start printing these prints for people. And so that's what I was doing. And and I was doing that at night, doing it on the side, you know, doing it in between jobs because I would be working for two weeks and then take a week off and then get another job and started to do that. And then started thinking, you know, I miss writing, like, because I was mostly doing little comics and I was mostly doing and and like started doing some lettering but doing it with like public domain quotes and right. things like that like just to practice the lettering and then i was like you know i really would like to to do my own stuff but i felt like i needed to have like a purpose behind it it felt like i want to be able to sort of think about this in an emotional way yeah. and that was where cards came in was because mm. i was like you know this is a thing that i always have trouble finding things that reflect my reality and like my personality and my relationships and i feel like there's an opportunity to do something cool here and when I started, I mean, I ha- and, and I hesitated a bit because I was like, how do you make money selling something that costs $4? Right. Like, that was, I mean, it was really. like your money's going right back exactly. to Exactly. Like, when like I was like, you know, and I'm, and I'm picturing, yeah. and I'm thinking about it in, the, in this very small way. Like, I'm thinking about it like I print a print and I can sell it for 25, 30 bucks. And why would I ever want to sell something for $4? You know, like I have to sell so many more of that thing yeah. and I don't know. And, and so, really, the first card was totally a test. And I had a hundred, which was like the minimum printed at a local printer. And I was like, well, maybe I'll never sell a hundred cards, but maybe I will. And I really felt, and I remember saying this to friends at the time, like if this gets in front of the right people, like I know people will buy this if they see it because like this is speaks to so many relationships Mm. that are not
0: being spoken to. Was that the now famous Valentine's Day card? Yeah, it's a Valentine's
1: Day card for the person you're kind of dating, but not really, Uh, which at the time there was nothing for that. And I was like, I just feel, I felt super strongly that like this will sell if it gets in front of the right people. And what I thought would happen was I'd put it in my Etsy shop and like 10 people would see it and they would just buy the crap out of it. Like 10 people would be like, oh my God, this is the most perfect thing I've ever seen. And they would buy it and be super happy. I didn't anticipate what ended up happening, which was it went viral and and st- ended up launching my company. But I did feel like very sure that it would connect with people. It was just the piece of I wasn't sure at the time how to get it in front of them because yeah. I didn't have a social media following. I didn't have anything. I mean, it was just right. you know me drawing pictures in my bedroom.
0: Yeah, but like I, I mean, clearly though, that must have signaled to you that's like wow, this is. Writing, I mean, it validated your hunch about the state of the green card industry, you know, and at the same time must have also validated to you like there's for whatever reason you have a lens on the world and the ability to express what people are feeling but aren't saying in a way that is just landing and it's time to do more of this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, and this was so fun. Like this didn't feel like a struggle. You know, this didn't feel hard. Yeah. This felt like this was fun and I could do this all day, every day. And so I was like, wait a minute, like I can do this. And I feel like I, at this point in my career, have a very good sense of like what is going to be good and what's not good. And I have no problem killing my own ideas because I've done that now for a million years. Mm. And the idea of being able to make those kinds of decisions on my own with no clients and, you know, and, and suffer the consequences. Like if I put something out and it fails, it's on me. But I, would, I was like, I would so much rather be here and be doing that than be relying on someone else to make those decisions at this yeah. point, you know?
0: That's so interesting. Cause it, it's, it, I mean, it signifies not just the shift for you to like, not just a career shift, but it's really like a moment where you're looking back on all those assumptions from your childhood and like the grasping for security and letting somebody else be in control and like right. create the container to saying, you know what, actually that's not necessarily the future I want. Totally. Yeah. So from there, I mean, this takes off. You start to build this really amazing company and you're creating a, a ton of stuff. You're hiring people. You've got inventory. You've got employees. Yes. You've got a warehouse at some point and um, incredibly successful and doing a lot of stuff that you love. And we had a really interesting conversation a couple of days ago where it sounds like you, also, you, you came to a time where you're like, okay, I'm successful from the outside looking in, from the inside looking out. But like when you kind of had a moment where you zoom the lens out and you're like, huh, let me just take stock of what's going on now. Is this, am I still happy? Am I, am I doing the job within the company I've now built that allows me to completely flourish? Talk me through this a little bit and the decisions you made.
1: Yeah. So by the end of 2015, I had 15 employees and we had a warehouse in Las Vegas where all of our stuff was being shipped out of and I had a whole staff there and I had house that I'd bought in Los Angeles that was serving as our office. And so we had like seven people in there working and it was becoming clear that I needed to hire more people, like a lot more people. And that my role was if the company was going to grow, I was going to have to hire a creative department and become like a creative director, or I was going to have to hire a COO or like some kind of some kind of business partner, like, because really I was spending most of my time running the business and putting out fires and handling business problems. And even with my wonderful staff in place who, who are awesome, it wasn't enough. Like it was just, there was too much work um, and too many things to think about for the number of people who were working on it. And one of the things that I learned about myself in this process was that I didn't love managing a lot of people. Like even if I really liked them, which I did, I liked all of them and I still do. And even if the people were great, I did not like managing a big team. I didn't really like having to be the boss. I mean, I liked being, the, I liked making the decisions, but I didn't like, I didn't like being the one who had to like be like, oh yeah, we have to have a staff meeting. Let me like make that happen and enforce it. Like just, I just got to a point where I didn't like, what my day to day was, because my day to day was very much about running the business. And then at night, when everyone left was when I would try to jam in all the creative because I was still writing and illustrating everything, because that was what I loved to do the most. And I felt like the creative was suffering. I felt like, you know, I don't have enough time to really do this. And there are all kinds of new products I want to develop and all kinds of stuff that I want to do. And all of that takes so much effort trying to new product development takes a lot of time and a lot of resources. And it was clear that we were going to grow out of our warehouse really fast. And I was just like, I don't know how to even project what we're going to do. I don't know how to like, I don't know how to even make projections. And my, even my accountant was like, I don't know how to tell you how to make projections because nothing that this company has done so far has like made any sense. Mm. Like nothing has followed any kind of logical trajectory. So I don't really know even how I can like, what to tell you at this point. It's just your gut. And the creative was really suffering. And I felt like, this is not, we're not going to have a company. Like if I can't make the work and make it good, like there is no company, you know, this is what's driving the whole thing. And the irony is that now I don't have the time to do it. And then I was like, well, I could hire this person, a COO. And I was like, ugh like it just sounded like so much work. It just sounded terrible. And then I started to look at, at our numbers and our whole, the wholesale side of our business was about 60% of our revenue. But it required 10 times as much infrastructure as the website, as people who just buy things from our website. And we made way more profit on buying things from our website because it was just a much more streamlined thing and we sold everything at a retail price. And the wholesale was just, I mean, it was just like the amount of work that went into supporting having 1,800 stores was just like astronomical. And so I started to think like, I mean, I was really looking at like, should we just stop making every other product besides cards? Like, because it's really hard to manufacture things. Like, should we just decide we're not going to do wholesale anymore? What would happen if we did that? What would happen if we, you know, and so I was going through like a million different scenarios in my head and and with our, with my head of sales and my head of operations. And we were just talking about like, what do we do here? And then um, I actually had a really interesting opportunity which is a company in Seattle called Madison Park Group. And they partner with, I think they have eight different brands that they partner with right now, where they ended up taking on, and they work differently with each partner depending on the partner needs. But what they did for me was they ended up taking on the logistics and manufacturing for the wholesale side of my business. And so we took all of our wholesale inventory, which was you know taking up, of the warehouse because Mm. it's it's just volume wise is so much shifted it to Seattle, which is where their warehouse is. And a couple of my employees went over and started working for them doing their exact same jobs. And so now basically when the phone rings, it goes to from a store, it goes to Seattle and all of the customer service is handled from Seattle and all the shipping goes out of Seattle. And I have a product development team there that I work with now and it's still me, there's, there's no creative, um, they're not doing any kind of creative control. It's just me being like, hey, I want to make this. Can you guys help me figure out how to make this? Mm. And they will, they have a lot more experience in working with different vendors than I do, a lot more experience in working overseas than I do. And so it's much easier for them to find a vendor in China right. or India or wherever that can make a thing that I want to have made and have it be an ethical factory and have it be like, in a way that I want to have it made and then they sort of they front the money for the purchase order and and I get a back end percentage from all of the wholesale basically
0: right yeah so and and the net result is that you get more space to go back to doing the way thing more that space. a you love to do yeah. and that you know like if it's not being done at the highest possible level nothing else matters <laughs> exactly
1: exactly and it's scaling it's it allows me to scale the company in a way that I couldn't have done before yeah. like we have all we have five or six new categories of products coming out in the next four months that yeah. I never could have done
0: on my own. Which is amazing because people, when people talk about scaling stuff, you know, a lot of them means the, the assumption very often in businesses, you know, like part of what you're going to do is have to change roles, mm-hmm. you know, and you're going to have to step out of being the artist or the technician or totally. like the chief IP creator and be the CEO and be like the head of operations. And I've seen so many people do that and actually build successful companies and, and end up building a company that they hate going to. Totally. Uh-huh. And, and
1: it even happens within advertising, too. Like, when the only way to become a creative director is to be really good at being a writer or an art director. Mm. And being a creative director is a totally different job. Right. And so what ends up happening is a lot of people get promoted and, like, it turns out that they were way better at being a creative than they are as a creative director, or it turns out that they don't actually like it and they really miss doing the work yeah. and that they don't actually like, you know, selling stuff and and flying around and talking to clients and like doing that and managing teams. They actually would just rather be like sitting in a room writing scripts, but it's, you don't know until you get there yeah. and it's a totally different job. And I think, and that happens a lot like where it's like you do so well doing a thing that then you get promoted Or you build a company, you build something that then you are like, wait a minute, my role here is totally different than, than when I started.
0: But I think that like the really cool difference is that, you know, like if you're doing this for there, there's a prescribed path in another company or industry where this is the next step. Like there is no left or right. It's like, this is the next step. Whereas when you're creating yourself, I love what, you know, what a you had, like you recognized that you actually had the opportunity to choose to do it differently, you know, and to actually reclaim the part of it that you liked and then literally create the job that you wanted and sort of like pull it back. And, and at the same time, still grow your company, still scale your business, still, it just took sort of like looking at it differently.
1: Yeah. And I had various options to do that too. Like it was like, we could have done X, we could have done Y, we could have done Z, you know, it was just figuring out what the best move was because it was really clear. That what I was doing was just overwhelming me and not working, and it's so funny because I said to you earlier, like I ran into one of my best friends from college downstairs in the coffee shop when I was on my way up here, and the last time I saw him in person was when I was here a year ago, and he was like, "You just seem so much happier. Like (laughs) you just seem like last time I saw you, you were so feel it. You were so stressed out, and like you were just, it just was clear." And I think it was clear to you too. He was like we didn't really talk about it, but it was like clear to me that what you were doing wasn't like sustainable for you, you know. And it was clear to me then, but I didn't see the path out of it. Yeah. I just saw like I got to get through this. And I don't know even what that looks like or what that means, and I had just signed a contract to write a book on top of everything else, <laughs> and I was just like what did I do? What have I done? Right. Like what who what, what? you know.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Sometimes we just need to like figure out a different path, or just let go of the the assumption that like that there is a prescribed way to actually make this happen. Oh, it's for like, sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, kind of coming full circle to a certain extent. Also, like you know, earlier in the conversation, we we're talking about how the fact that when you're going through cancer treatment, like you had this big awakening about how people just don't understand how to relate. Um, mm-hmm. But you didn't want that to define you, and, right? You also made some really interesting deliberate choices because when you started the card company and we started to succeed, you could have immediately created a line of cards that were all, you know, like your empathy cards, but Mm -hmm. but like with your particular form of let's make this real, you know, but you chose not to do it until much later in the process.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was super deliberate. And it was because I knew that the idea that I had to do a different kind of sympathy card, I knew that I could write them in a way that we're going to, address some problems and resonate with people. And I knew that if I did it right, that it could be a really big idea. And I also knew that it would be really different than anything that existed out there. But I what I really didn't want was to be pigeonholed and to have my whole company turn into like a cancer card company. I really felt like my brand was bigger than that and I felt like there were a lot more different kinds of problems and things that I could do. And it also was like, I don't want to be in that space all the time. Like it's kind of depressing to be in that space all the time, to be honest. Like I I want to be able to sort of be there, but also be in a, a space where we're talking about like love and relationships and more fun stuff or things that are other like less critical problems that need solving, but that are still interesting, you know? And I was worried that if I started off and my brand became known at the same time as those cards were becoming known, that those two things would become inseparable. That was just such a big thing that it would sort of eclipse everything else. Mm. And I also felt like this is a big idea, and I was watching the trajectory of my business, and every month it was just more and more and more people buying the stuff, following me on social media, sort of just growing the platform. So I was like, you know, if I hold on to this for like a year, I will have the opportunity to really... I think get this in front of a lot more people when we do launch it, and in fact, what happened and the and I really the reason one reason that it was so successful the empathy cards were so successful immediately and just like caught fire was that Brene Brown had become a fan of my work before I launched empathy cards. she really liked what I was doing she like like she had bought some stuff I'd sent her some stuff like we had, and then we just sort of became friends over email. we have some friends in common so when i when I did empathy cards, I sent her some before I released them mm-hmm. it wasn't with the intention of her posting about them, it was just like, I think you will love these. This is what I'm doing now. I'm super excited about it. I'm, I'm just giving you like a preview of it because I think they're like super up your alley and I know that you'll really like it yeah. and, you, and you like my work. And she was like, oh my God, these are amazing. I want to write a whole blog post about them and like send it out to all everyone that is mm-hmm. on my subscriber list. And... That's like millions of people, you know, and I was just like really blown away by that. And she did. I mean, she, the morning that we released them, she sent out this email to all of her subscribers that was about them. That was just like, look at these things. They just came out. Look at what they do. Here's the blog. Like, read what what she said about them. Like, this is pretty awesome. Immediately, people started posting them on social media. And then 24 hours later was when all of the, you know, Slate and the right, Post, and those guys started picking it up. up, and yeah. then 24 hours after that, started to be like NBC Nightly News and Good Morning America, and the TV people.
0: Yeah, but what's so cool is like, I mean, because I guess because of the time that you spent in the ad industry, you understood that cycle, mm-hmm. and even though you got this massive onslaught of you know these expanding ripples of larger and larger media that were great for the company. Your plan worked perfectly, which was you were established enough already as something bigger than that, right? That it didn't define the entire brand anymore, which is It didn't define the brand.
1: And, you know, there are a lot of people that associate us with that, and that's fine. Like, I don't mind that at all. You know, it's not, I I don't mind the association, and and I'm actually very proud of the association. But we were, it's true, we had enough other products because we had a lot of other, you know, we had 150 other products at that point. And so it was enough of a thing. And and Brene, you know, knew my work. Totally outside of that context, like she you know had bought our other cards, and so she wasn't thinking of us as that company, yeah. and so she didn't position in her email, didn't say like there's this company that is about that's all about cards for grief and cancer okay. it was so that plan did work and and the part of the plan that was let me wait because if I had just done it, if I'd come out of the gate with this, I wouldn't have known her, I wouldn't have known. Any of the other people who posted
0: about it. I mean, it's amazing to see because when when you look at what you've created and sort of the breadth and, you know, like the thousands of stores it's distributed and um, the expanding product lines and all this, I think the immediate assumption is wow, like she's been in this for a couple of decades. And
1: yeah. It's yeah. happened
0: astonishingly. I mean, you, yeah. you could look back and say, no, you've actually been building to this your whole life.
1: But yes, <laughs> I have. In, I've been building the skills required to do it my right. whole life. But the actual infrastructure of the company has only, this has only existed for like three and a half years. Right. It's
0: crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you ever sort of just like stop for a moment and look around and say,
1: wow. <laughs> yeah, I do it all the time. And, you know, it's my life, especially even like a year in was so, was 180 degrees from what it had been a year before. Mm. And one of the things that this has really taught me is, and maybe other people don't think this way, but I know that for me, when I thought about things that could happen quickly that would change your life, it was always in the context of bad things. Like someone dies that's close to you and your whole life changes, or like the bottom falls out, or your you know your house burns down, or like whatever. Like some tragic thing that ends up changing the trajectory of your life. And I never really thought about it in the context of like a good thing, you know, unless it's like winning the lottery or something. But like I never really could have imagined you could have a year of your life. It's like putting a blindfold on you and spinning you around and just sending you off in a whole different direction. And I'd never really thought about that or certainly hadn't experienced it. And so to have that happen was just, it was insane. I mean, it, it's, it is still insane. And, and to think about how different my life is now than it was five years ago is kind of astonishing.
0: Yeah, which actually feels like a good place to come full circle. So the name mm-hmm. of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer that phrase out to you, to live a good life, what does it, what does it mean to you? What comes up?
1: It means to spend your time... In integrity, like spend your time doing something that you enjoy and also feeling good about what you're doing and and what you're contributing to the world and feeling, just feeling like you're living without, without any kind of regrets, feeling like you're living without, you know, that if you died tomorrow, you wouldn't look back and say like, Oh, I wish I'd done this or that or the other thing, you know, to just be, it means being present in who you are and, and living that way. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone. If you have an iPhone, you just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project.